Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are starting a series on the book of Romans. We started just last week and kind of dove into it, this letter to the Romans. So a man named Paul, about 2,000 years ago, had been grown up as a Pharisee, a, a Jewish man, had grown up in the faith, and then come to follow Jesus and acknowledge Him as Savior, and then was going around the Mediterranean proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And he did this sometimes by traveling, but he also did it by sending letters to these people to encourage them to see what it looked like to follow Jesus and to live that out. And we have many of these letters in our New Testament. One of those is the letter to the Romans, this church in Rome. Paul had never been to the church in Rome, but he was writing them to encourage them. And Romans is one of the deepest, longest, most theologically dense letters, probably because Paul hadn't been there. So he had a lot to explain, a lot to go back. But there were also some things that were an important part of the background to this letter. And so we introduced some of those last week, and just a quick highlight, if you go to the end of the letter, we read about there were troubles in this church. Surprise, surprise, right? Church, troubles, who, who would know? Who would know? There were divisions, conflict within the church between a group called the strong and the weak, different ideas about what it looked like to follow Jesus. Paul was also appealing to support his missionary effort, and he was introducing himself. So all these things set the stage, so as we're reading this dense theology, part of what we're looking at is how does this relate to this idea of bringing unity to a church? Because part of the idea that Paul is getting at is to live the gospel, and the gospel is not simply a path to salvation, that's part of it, but the gospel is a proclamation, an announcement of God's good news. In fact, we're calling this series the gospel of God because it's the gospel of God, comes from God, it's about God, and specifically about Jesus and His saving work and His reign as the King. And He's inviting people to live into this good news. And so as you heard John reading earlier, this idea of he's coming to preach the gospel or he wants to preach the gospel to these people who are already in church. And we often think of preaching the gospel to people who are not in the church. But we in the church need to be reminded of this gospel, this good news, because we're being called to live. The good news isn't simply something that gets us into the kingdom, but it's life in the kingdom and what it looks like. It's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so we're proclaiming that good news to one another, and that this good news is also a power. But I like to think of maybe the gospel as our defining story. It defines who we are, and so Paul is setting up this story for us. And so I wanted to go over these first 17 verses again, and we probably could do five or six weeks just on these first 17 verses, but we won't. We're going to continue on. There's a lot there, and we'll pick up, come back to these themes, because like so many things, the beginning is where we learn. We learn so much in it. Paul introduces lots of key ideas and key themes. But today, specifically, what I want to do is connect what Paul says in these opening verses to baptism. Tasha was up here, and she introduced this idea that later at the end of the service, we're going to be baptizing. We have four people coming to be baptized for the first time, and one recommitting or reaffirming those baptismal vows. But what is this thing that we do called baptism, and how does it connect to what Paul is talking about here? And so I want us to look at that in context of three different things. One is in Romans 1.16, which says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. And sometimes we hear that language of I'm, I'm not ashamed and we maybe put that in our own context and say, well, I'm not embarrassed by it. You know, don't be ashamed of the gospel. And Paul is saying that, but he's saying a lot more than that. And part of our struggle to understand what Paul means is we live in the United States in 2022. Paul wrote his letter to the Romans somewhere around 50 AD. It's almost 2,000 years ago in a very different culture. How many of you have ever experienced another culture? If you've traveled outside of Whitehall, Muskegon, you've probably experienced a different culture. Now, sometimes we think of that simply as a different culture is like we have to go to a foreign country. There are places in the United States where you go, it is a different culture. Different language is used, different ways of thinking. And it can be as simple as, what do you call the bubbly drink that you drink, like Coca-Cola, Pepsi? Oh, yeah, see, here we go. We got Pope, Pop, Soda. If you were to go to Atlanta, Georgia, you would ask for a Coke. And it doesn't matter what kind you're getting, you get a Coke. You know, some places it's pop, some places it's soda pop, different kind of like, that's part of culture, that's language, that's a simple one, but there are also different ways of who speaks first, who speaks last, how we speak to elders, all those different kinds of things. And so when Paul is writing to this church in Rome, one of the central elements of the cultures of what we would call the eastern part of the world is a sense of honor and shame, something we don't deal with as much here. And that's a helpful thing as we're thinking about this is that ability to translate into different cultures. Because we, sometimes when we're engaging someone from a different culture, a different background, a different way of seeing the world, we sometimes don't understand what the other person's talking about. We don't understand their background. We don't understand where they're coming from because they come from a different culture, a different way of thinking about the world. And so... For example, what Paul talks about this in his letter to the Corinthians, and he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And so he's talking about Jesus Christ who's been crucified, and he's talking about these issues, and he said, well, it's a stumbling block. It's foolishness. Well, why is it foolishness to so many of the other people? Because they have a picture of what glory looks like. Many of us have a picture of, if I were to say, like, describe something of glory, Maybe a moment of glory in your own life. Some of us may go back to the days of high school and our, that time we won the game or we were picked to be the lead in the play or whatever it is. And there was this moment of glory when we were lifted up. But glory had many different ways it could be understood. And so in Paul's day, glory meant different things. If you were a Roman, glory had to do with the glory that was Rome. And so you see this picture of the Colosseum here. And so someone coming into Rome was reminded of the glory that was Rome, this empire that was built on technology and wisdom and most of all, military power. And so as people talked about the glory of the Rome, of the glory of Rome and all of this, there was a picture that came to mind. It may be a picture of walking into Rome. Imagine coming from Galilee or another part of the Mediterranean where most of the buildings were one or two small buildings, little houses that you lived in, except maybe in Jerusalem, the glory of the past. And then you come to Rome, and you see this giant Colosseum and the games that were held there. 
And Rome would say, this is our glory. The Roman legions would march out and they would say, this is the glory of Rome. It exudes power and authority. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, that's not what glory looks like. Glory looks like a man dying and hanging on a cross, naked and ashamed. And if you were a Roman, you think, well, that's foolishness. That's not glory. How is that glory for a guy to die like that? Maybe in a big battle where you kill all sorts of enemies, but he dies weak, naked, with all his friends fleeing from him. Or maybe it was the glory in those days of the Greek philosophers, or people like Aristotle and Plato. Wisdom, where they'd have these long discussions, elaborate discussions of what wisdom looks like. My guess is in all those discussions of wisdom, wisdom never looked like dying for your enemies. Wisdom never looked like shame and death and abandonment on a cross. Or maybe if you were one of the Jewish people, you knew that the glory that was given to you was the law of Moses, that God had come to your people and he had lightning and thunder on Mount Sinai and he had handed down these tablets and you as the people of God lived into this glory that was the law of Moses. And then a man comes along who says he's the Messiah and he dies on a tree which was a symbol of being cursed by God. And so what Paul is doing is he's offering something different. He's saying that's not what glory looks like. And so when he's saying I'm not ashamed, in fact, what he's saying is I'm proud of this. I'm boasting in this thing. And what am I boasting in? The fact that the God I serve is a crucified Messiah. And people are like, well, that's, why would you boast in that? And so he's setting himself up as this is what he is. And he's saying this is something different, that self-evident power and glory are not his standard. And so he's setting this up in this picture of that's what it is. And so Douglas Herring says it this way. He says, the shameful news of the crucified one raised from the dead exposes other glories as weak, foolish, and impoverished, insubstantial, fading, and passing away. The shameful news, of which Paul is what? Not ashamed. Exposes other glories as weak, foolish, impoverished, insubstantial, fading, and passing away. And he's really throwing it down here and saying, this glory of Jesus is something totally different. In other words, when we boast in the crucified one, it's a subversion. And so baptism is an acknowledgement of that. It's, it's in one way saying, proclaiming someone coming to be baptized, saying, I'm proclaiming this boldly. I'm not ashamed. I'm proud of the fact that the one I'm associating myself with is a crucified one. Whatever other idea of glory we have, we could spend some time thinking about that. You know, what do we think of as glorious about our own community, about our own country? And how does the gospel, the good news of Jesus, invert that, subvert that, and turn that around? And so when these individuals come and are baptized, they're saying, I'm associating myself with that. I'm not ashamed. In fact, I'm boasting in the one that I serve and follow as a crucified Savior. Second part I want to look at is this idea of faith or belief. And so we have these words. This is what I talked about a little bit about last week. Words that show up in our Bible. 
And they have a lot of different meetings. And, and so this word faith we see in our Bible, we often associate simply with belief. But the word that's used, the Greek word pistis, has a range of meanings. And so that's how words work. As words typically have a range of meanings. There's one common meaning we have. And so if I were to say a mouse, you know, we have a range of meanings, right? Could mean a number of, or, or a trunk. There's a range of meanings. There's typically one that comes to mind first for you. The word faith is the same way. Faith often refers to belief, but it can also re- refer to faithfulness. So that same word, Greek word can mean faith. It can mean belief in, or it can mean the faithfulness of some way. So it can be about in Romans, it can be about God's faithfulness or Christ's or about ours. So in Romans 1.17 where it says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as written, the righteous will live by faith. And really what it says there, it says that is a righteousness, and you may, depending on your Bible, sometimes you have little footnotes. You ever notice that in your Bible? You're reading along, and, and like in my Bible, as I'm reading, where it says a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, there's a little letter there. And if I look down at the bottom, it says, from faith to faith. And so what the translators have done have tried to explain to you, well, what in the world is from faith to faith? And we're going to come back to some of these other things, this idea of what righteousness is, but I want to think about what faith is. And faith is this idea of belief and what it means. And so Michael Gorman, scholar, one way he says, he says, Here's one way to translate it or imagine. He says, for in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed through Christ's faithfulness in order to generate faithfulness among those who hear it. So faith to faith isn't simply, isn't just about believing in something, but it's about faithfulness. So in other words, what it is is saying is like the righteousness, God's righteousness is revealed in Christ's faithfulness. And what did Christ do? He went, he was faithful to the end. And the reason for it is to inspire faithfulness in us. And you think, Carl, where are you getting this all from? That's not there. I invite you to go back a few verses. Romans 1, 5. Through him, this is Paul talking, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Or really what it says, the obedience of faith for his name's sake. And then at the end of Romans... 1626, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. So there's this connection going on between obedience and faith. And one way, and I've liked a number of uh, scholars translated is it's faithful obedience. That's what it is. It's this idea of pledging yourself. And so connection to baptism. Back in the days of Rome, again, I mentioned the glory of Rome. Part of Rome's glory is what? The army. How many of you have served in the military or know people who have served in the military? What's one of the first things when you enter the military, what do you do? Take an oath, right? A pledge, an oath. An oath, in our case, in the United States military, an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and it goes on. Soldiers in Rome took an oath, an oath to the empire, an oath to the emperor. That oath was called a sacramentum. And when the early Christian writers were talking about baptism, they described it as a sacramentum. So depending on the church tradition you grew up, you may hear about the sacraments. 
and baptism as a sacrament. And so this idea of baptism was a pledge of allegiance. Because what would happen when someone came and was baptized in these days of Rome, and there were all these other gods to serve, and there was a pledge asked of every member of the Roman Empire, every person under the influence of Rome, to pledge their allegiance to Caesar. And then people who were invited to follow Jesus were asked to confess not that Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And so when they came and they were baptized, it was a confession that Jesus is Lord, meaning Caesar is not. In other words, it was a pledge of allegiance, a pledge of being faithful. And that's what the pledge of allegiance was. It was to say, I am now loyal. I am now faithful to Jesus. And so when Paul is talking here, he's the gospel that is righteousness by faith from faith. So we're learning about the faithfulness of Jesus and encouraging us to be faithful in and of ourselves. And that was the problem in Rome. These people were fighting about each other. They weren't being faithful to Jesus. Somebody faithful to Jesus puts the needs of others before themselves. Somebody faithful to Jesus loves their neighbor as themselves. And so there's this idea about we're asked, being asked to be identified with this crucified one and pledging our allegiance to Him. And so when we baptize people today, we don't think of it in that terms. We think like, oh, oh they go underwater and they come out and they get wet. And... It's a sign of their allegiance. It's saying, I'm committing my life. I'm giving my life to Jesus. And I'm saying that now Jesus is Lord and I'm going to follow Him and do what He says. And He's the one that I give my allegiance to. And so when Paul is saying, he's saying, we're preaching the gospel so that people will live the obedience that comes from faith or the obedience of faith, an obedience marked by faith or allegiant obedience. And so it's a way to think about that. So as we baptize, I want you to think about those two things. One is the people being baptized are identifying themselves with a crucified Lord. They're pledging their allegiance to Jesus. But the last thing is it's all connected to one thing, and that's salvation. So Romans 1.16, back to that. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. Again, another big church word, right? Salvation. And it is a big word because it's encompassing. So Beverly... Um, Gaventa talks about it this way. She says, a careful study of Romans means finding that salvation is more complex, more cosmic, more challenging than we have usually imagined. In other words, sometimes we think of salvation, what Gaventa is getting at in her book, When in Romans, is she's getting at this idea that salvation is more than just individual forgiveness of sins. It's, that's part of it. That's a part of salvation, but it's so much more. So if we were to go to Romans 6, we're going to get there in a few weeks, but I just wanted, this is like a sneak preview. Now, I don't, I'm not a big fan of spoilers. My kids know this. Like, I, you know, when, when I go to the movies and like the, the previews come on, I leave the theater or like I put my hands over my ears because I want to come and I want to watch a movie. You know, like I avoid when TV shows come out, whenever it is, I try to avoid everything. I don't want to be spoiled, but I'm giving you a spoiler here. So if you don't like spoilers... Put your hands over your ears and kind of uh, hum to yourself or something so you don't. But Romans chapter 6, 
is giving this. In Romans 6, 3, it says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? And then it goes on, he says, We were therefore baptized with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so there's this picture of when we baptize, when we identify with Christ, like Christ was raised, we will be raised. And that's often what we think of as salvation, being raised, you know, eternal life. But he goes on. And he says, not only about the resurrection, like he says, for if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live for him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. And it continues, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And so when Paul's talking about salvation, he's not only talking about something that's future, about resurrection life, he's talking about this picture of salvation as rescue from the powers of sin and death. And so when I say, and when Beverly Roberts Gaventa talks about salvation as cosmic, what he's inviting us to do here is to say, this is much more than that. So when these people come forward and are baptized, it's part and parcel a symbol of they go underneath the water and they come up out of the water, which is what? A picture a word picture, a demonstration of Jesus who was laid in a tomb and raised up out of a tomb. It's new life, it's resurrection, it's a new life, but it's also a symbol of water, which Tasha talked about wash, water does what? It washes. But if we were to look big in the Bible, there's a whole lot of other images of water. One of the ones that the people of God used most often was a picture of when they were in slavery in Egypt and God frees them from slavery in Egypt and they're running across the desert and Pharaoh's army comes chasing after them and they come to a body of water, the Red Sea. And God does what? Parts the water and they go through the water and then when Pharaoh and his army comes after, what does he do? The water crushes Pharaoh. And so it's this picture of freedom and slavery. So when we read about salvation in Romans, I want you to picture not simply eternal life, but what happens in our life now. And part of that life now is Jesus Christ has defeated sin and death, and it's a freedom from those things. And so as we baptize people, we're reminded of this freedom from this, we're saying you're entering into a life of salvation, which is not something simply future, but something now. And it's something cosmic. It reminds us of the waters of creation. It reminds us of the waters of Noah. It reminds us of the waters at the crossing of the Red Sea or when the people enter into the promised land. When Jesus is baptized, all these pictures of water coming together to say, this salvation that we're proclaiming, and this is what I want us to think about, this gospel, this good news is about us having our sins forgiving and living forever with God, but it is much, much, much more than that. It's not less than that. That's a part of it, but it is so much more than that. So in a few moments when we baptize, that's what we're doing. We're proclaiming something. We're announcing something. We're announcing, first of all, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus reveals the glory of God, the glory of God in a crucified Savior who dies to self. And so it's a, 
It's an idea to live. This is the glory that we're called to live into. And so that connects with the second part is it's a gospel that calls for allegiance, to commit to a life of Jesus, to following in His path and His ways. And so it's an invitation for those being baptized today and for all of us who have been baptized to say, we want to live into this gospel. We want to live into the life of Jesus, to look like Jesus, the one who was crucified and risen. We want to look like Jesus who saw glory as giving his life for others. The one who, like Jesus, whose ultimate aim in life was to listen to his Father. And so the idea of faith to faith, in other words, to live a faithful life like Jesus did. So we proclaim a gospel of glory that looks like a crucified Savior. We proclaim a gospel that calls for allegiance or the obedience of faith, faithful allegiance. We also proclaim, as we baptize, a gospel that saves. That saves us from our sin. That forgives us, that washes us clean, that makes us children of God. But more than that, begins to set right all of creation that frees us from enslavement to sin and death. And so as you watch these individuals baptized, as you hear them proclaim their vows as they enter into that water, remember this is the gospel of God, the good news that saves, the power of God that calls for our allegiance and brings salvation to all. Amen.